I'm not sure whether to say amen or wow. <laughs> Wasn't that wonderful? Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, choir. Thanks. Good job. Good job. I, I'm sure that um, some of you remember George Foreman. Uh, George is a two-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He's also an Olympic gold medalist, an ordained Baptist minister, an author and entrepreneur. He also has five sons, all named George. So I guess you could say that Foreman is a, is a colorful character who is probably better known today for his, his grills, his George Foreman grills. You know it. But when he won his, his second heavyweight championship... At the age of 45, he became the oldest man in the world to win the heavyweight title. And it's really a remarkable story. <clears throat> he says that when he started his comeback, he, he had to get rid of what he called some excess George. <laughs> you see, he was extremely overweight in, in the 10 years that, uh, that had taken place between uh, between his last bout and this bout, uh, when he'd been out of boxing, he had ballooned from 220 pounds to 315 pounds, and it wasn't all muscle. <laughs> so to get back into an exercise regimen, he started with the basics, running every day. However, he was so out of shape that he couldn't get very far. At first, he couldn't even make it around the block which was less than a mile, and he had to stop several times along the way just to catch his breath. He says, just imagine this big, fat guy like me gasping for air, barely able to jog around the block, who claims that he will one day be the heavyweight champion of the world again. I looked ridiculous. He said, I'm sure my neighbors laughed as they peeked through their curtains every morning while I slowly shuffled past their houses. Only two people in the world believed that I could recapture the title, my wife and me. But he had to get his weight down. He walked. He ran. He walked. He ran. And then finally he was able to run the whole way around the block. And then he began to run longer distances. And with the combined proper diet and regular exercise, the fat continued to melt away. He kept running for the next eight months until he finally got down to his fighting weight of 229 pounds. He said the flab was fun to put on, but it was hard to take off. And some of us know about that, don't we? However, he would never have won the championship title for the second time if he hadn't gotten rid of that extra weight. So you have to admire George Foreman. He worked hard to get what he wanted. In fact, indeed, I, I admire anyone who sets a lofty goal and then gives his or her best to attain it. A few years ago, Karen Phelps, who is a long-distance runner, runner uh, wrote these challenging words. She said, on this particular day, I didn't feel like running at all, but I made myself run. Because running is a sport you have to practice every day. Isn't that right, Sarah? <laughs> I 
I see, I see Sarah running all the time up and down the street there. She said, I wanted to win races, so I, I set a plan for training. Number one, run every day, even if you don't feel like it. Number two, run every day, even if you sometimes have to skip fun and pleasure. Number three, run every day, even in bad weather, even if people think you're weird. Number four, run every day, even when it gives you aches and pains and you feel like quitting. And number five, run every day, even if you don't feel like it's doing any good. One day, she continues, As I jogged along my training run, it came to me that daily practice, training, was what my spiritual life needed as well. Do you know what I've learned, she said? Sometimes you may not feel like praying or reading the Bible or going out of your way to help others. But if you are in training, physical or spiritual, You'll just do it. And you know, Karen Phelps is right on target there. You see, a strong spiritual life takes work. But unfortunately, too many Christians today take their spiritual life so casually that it's almost non-existent. You may have heard the joke about the guy who came into a bar and ordered three shots of whiskey and downed them all, one right after the other. And so the bartender asked the guy, what's up with the three shots? And the guy said, well, my my two closest buddies and I have gone our separate ways. They've moved uh, out of town, and I, I miss them terribly. So this glass is for Tom, and this one's for Bob, and this one's mine. I feel like we're all drinking together, just like old times. So every day this guy comes into the bar and the bartender sets up three glasses of whiskey until one day the guy only asks for two glasses, two shots. And the bartender, fearing the worst, said, I hate to ask, but did something happen to one of your buddies? And the guy said, nah, they're okay. I just promised my wife that I would quit drinking. So this one's for Tom and this one's for Bob. You know, I kind of doubt that that guy really had decided to quit drinking, don't you think? And unfortunately, many Christians give their spiritual life just about as much effort as that man did to quitting drinking. Well, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And as he made his way through the towns and the villages, he stopped and he talked to those who, who came out to hear him. And he was becoming quite a celebrity, Sometimes thousands of people would come out to hear him speak. Yet he knew that a lot of these people, maybe even most of these people, were just curious. They weren't really seeking after the truth. They just wanted to get a peek at this new celebrity making his way through the countryside. And about that time, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And my guess is that this was a serious question. Luke usually tells us when he thinks that somebody's trying to trip Jesus up. So maybe this person who asked this question, maybe he assumed that he or she was safely in the fold and asked the question in somewhat of a smug, self-righteous way. I'm in, and these other, other folks are out. 
Or perhaps this person asked because he or she was worried about being left out. Either way, I think it was probably a serious question. But, but of course, Jesus rarely answered a question directly. And he doesn't this time either. He turns to the questioner and says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, what does he mean by that? Enter through the narrow door. You know, I love church bulletin bloopers. You see them posted on the Internet from time to time. But this passage of Scripture, this particular passage of Scripture, always reminds me of one that an announcement in a church bulletin. And here's what it said. It said, Weight Watchers will meet next Tuesday night. Please use the wide double doors in the back. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, enter by the narrow door? Does he mean that the number of people who will get into heaven is is limited? Well, that's interesting because according to most polls, most Americans not only believe in heaven, but they also believe that they will someday get there. One poll conducted by USA Today showed that 72% of people polled uh, rated their chance of getting into heaven as good to excellent. But these same people also said that only about 60% of their friends would get there. I'm not sure about that discrepancy. (laughs) But here's what's interesting. By what authority do they assume that they are likely candidates for heaven? Particularly if they are only nominally interested in religion, as most Americans are. So we can... We can't really say what Jesus meant when he said that the door is narrow. But here's what we do know. We do know that anything worth having in this world requires work. You want a strong body? You work for it. You want a strong marriage? You work at it. You want a strong company? You work at it. So why should our spiritual life be any different? Well, unfortunately, we have become so obsessed with the notion of salvation by faith that we totally ignore an entire segment of Jesus' teachings that call for commitment and sacrifice. And don't get me wrong here, because the Bible is very clear that we we are not saved by our works, but folks... Neither is our faith sustained apart from our good works. Paul even compared the Christian life to an athlete training for a race. And what did he mean by that? He meant that it requires diligence and hard work. Someone has has compared the balance of faith and work as uh, to two wings of a bird. In order for a bird to, to fly, both wings are necessary. And so we, we give ourselves, we give our lives to Christ, and then we submit ourselves to serving Christ through His body, the church. We serve by caring for the down and out, and we serve by showing our love to our neighbors, and we serve by using our influence in, in our community. And my reading of the New Testament is very clear. 
We cannot say that we belong to Christ if we are not obedient to his teachings. Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. The Greek word for make every effort is agonisma, agonisma. And it's the same word that, that, uh, from which our English word agonize comes from. And we, when we say that someone is agonizing, wouldn't we consider them to be in an intense struggle? But agonisma is, was a technical term used for athletes in competition, like in the Olympics. They agonize. They make every effort. They struggle. They strive to win the prize. What I'm, what I'm trying to deal with here is the idea that seems to be prevalent in our churches today, and that is that the Christian life is easy, and not much is required of us. We can just turn it over to the pastor and let him or her worry about the spiritual things while we focus on our secular affairs, and with a little nod towards God every once in a while, but not really much thought. What an absurd idea. Think I'm exaggerating? A recent Gallup poll contends that fewer than 10% of Christians in America could, could, could be called deeply committed. And a majority of people who profess Christianity do not know basic Christian teachings and do not act any differently because of their Christian experience. As one pastor put it, 90% of our churches across the country require less commitment than the local Kiwanis Club. And folks, that's disturbing. Yet who could deny that it's true? So let me ask you a question and this was a question I used to think was kind of flippant and, and, you know, one of those, you know, bumper sticker type of a things, you know. And it was. I think it was a bumper sticker. But it's one that was popular a few years ago, and, and I want to see if it's still relevant today. And I usually don't go by bumper stickers, but here it is. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The narrow door suggests that Christ loves us, whoever we are, and whatever we may have done. But, folks, Christ expects that we will not stay where we are. In other words, Christ expects that we will grow. Christ expects us to agonize, to strive, to struggle to discipline ourselves, to live our lives according to the standard that he has established for us. How many of you have seen that um, movie came out a, a while back called Coach Carter? Anybody seen that movie? Some of you have. It's a great movie. It's a true story about Kenneth Carter. He was an inner-city basketball coach who took a, a ragtag group of high school students and shaped them into a tightly disciplined, almost unstoppable team of athletes. 
And to accomplish this feat, he was brutal. He always pushed the boys to the edge of their endurance and then a little further. Any insolence was immediately reprimanded with a crackdown of grueling drills. The slightest tardiness was penalized. Backtalk was squelched beneath a, a mountain of workouts. And to show that he meant business, he made headlines in 1999 for benching his entire undefeated basketball team because of their poor grades. Bench the whole team. When was the last time you heard of a coach doing that? Under Coach Carter's harshness, at first these boys withered. But then they flourished. So why did Coach Carter put his players through such agony? Was it because he hated them? No. It was because he loved them and he wanted the very best for them. What he wanted was for them to become more than they were. And that's what Christ wants for us as well. He wants us to be fit to share eternity with him. William Willimon once told about the Methodist Bishop of Angola who came to Evanston, Illinois, uh, to speak to a group of young Christians there. And the bishop was asked, what's it like to be the church in a Marxist country? Is the new Marxist government supportive of the church, they asked. And the bishop said, no, but we don't ask the government to be supportive of the church. Then they asked, have there been tensions? And he said, yes, not long ago the government declared that we should disband all of the women's organizations in the church. So what did you do, they asked. He said, well, the women just kept on meeting. The government's not strong enough to, yet to, to do very much about it. And, and so they said, well, what will you do when the government gets stronger? And he says, well, we'll just keep meeting. The government does what it needs to do, and the church does what it needs to do. And if we go to church, if we, if we go to jail for being the church, then we go to jail. He said, jail's a wonderful place for evangelism. And then the bishop said this. He said, our church made some of its most dramatic gains during the revolution when so many of us were in jail. In jail, you have everyone there in one place. You have time to preach and to teach. Sure, 20 of our Methodist pastors were killed during the revolution, but we came out of jail a much stronger and larger church. And if seeing the drift of their questions, the bishop said this. Don't worry about the church in Angola. God is doing fine by us. And then he said, frankly, I think it would be much more difficult to be a pastor here in Evanston, Illinois, than in Angola. Because here there is so much. There are so many things, so many activities. It must be hard to be the church here. You know, he's right. It is hard to be the church in Evanston, Illinois, just as hard as it is to be the church in Henderson, Kentucky. Not because we are persecuted, 
But because we have it so easy that there's no sense of urgency about entering through the narrow door. So let me say it once again. We cannot definitively say what Jesus meant when he said that the door is narrow, but here's what we do know. Anything worth having in this world requires work. So why would that not apply to our life of faith? The narrow door suggests that Christ loves us, whoever we are and whatever we have done, but Christ expects that we will not stay where we are. You see, Christ calls us to a new way of of living. Christ calls us to a a life loving our God and loving our neighbor. Christ calls us to train ourselves spiritually, just as an athlete might train himself or herself physically for a major contest. And that takes discipline to become a better person. And by doing that, we glorify the Lord. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus answered, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. In other words, that's your goal. Work hard to achieve it. Just do it. Amen. We're going to sing our closing hymn. And uh, it's a short hymn, so we're going to sing all five verses of this hymn. Break out old church of God. And this is the challenge to each of you today. Not that you come here and you enjoy this time together. It's to break out and be the church, not just here, but out there, more importantly out there. Break out, O church of God. Break through the wall of pride. The love and justice of our God must not be locked inside. That's my challenge for you today, that we don't allow the church and the justice and the love of God to be locked in this place. Let us sing together, number 401, Break Out, O Church of God.
Let's go have a picnic. But before we do, let us pray. Do not go from here complacent in the fact that you have worshipped the Lord today. That you have enjoyed the music, the fellowship, the gathering of God's people. As beautiful as that is, it is not the end of our spiritual journey. Now begins the hard work, the agony even, of spiritual growth. Stretch your minds to understand the things of God. Flex your muscles as you carry the load for someone who can't. Run to those who need you and always seek the face of the Lord who stands at the finish line ready to reward you with the crown of righteousness. Go and be the disciples of God, fulfilling God's kingdom here on earth. Amen.